Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kia mai. Welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance Aho. Coming up, we've got a meaty investigation into the future of farming in the age of synthetic food. But first up, a bit of Christmas cheer. The devastating Kaikoura earthquake in November last year had, and continues to have, a big impact on the lives of Marlborough residents. Despite concerns at the time, though, it seems that most of the local wildlife, from seals to whales, came through pretty much unscathed. The big outstanding question is, how did the Hutton Shearwaters get on? And we've got the first on-the-ground reports of how they're doing. I promise we'll get to that news in just a minute, but first, here's a wee reminder of what we're talking about. So Hutton Shearwaters are one of New Zealand's most amazing seabirds in that they breed right up in the mountain. And they're a, a shearwater or a peaty, a type of mutton bird, and they're unique and just occurring to sites in the Kaikoura Mountains. And they breed in burrows, which they dig. Um, the burrows last from one year to the next, typically. And they mate up with another bird and they lay their eggs up there and then rear their chicks for ooh, four or five months. A pretty hefty haul to fly up there. They're not well suited to flying uphill as a seabird. They're, no, they're more suited for soaring over the waves like a, like a small albatross. That's Richard Cuthbert. He's a biologist who did his PhD on Hutton's shearwaters. And after three years working in the Corfi River colony in the mid-1990s, he knows the birds and the area better than anyone. He can tell you they're a hard bird to count, but before the quake, the shearwater population was thought to number about 100,000 breeding pairs in the Corfi, with about 10,000 in shearwater stream. Now, the Hutton's Shearwater Charitable Trust, using earthquake assessment funding from MPI, got Richard and three dock rangers in to assess the shearwater population. It's no easy job. Corfi Stream and Shearwater Stream, which is on Pui Peak Station, are remote and rugged. And that's an understatement. The ground is very steep and covered in unstable scree slopes and loose rock. There were massive rock slides and avalanches throughout the Kaikoura Ranges as a result of the earthquake. Pretty much it was shaken very violently and a lot of it fell down. Everyone feared the worst for the small birds which were in the middle of their breeding season. It's now a year later and it's finally been considered safe enough to send people into the hills. I've just been back into the mountains and had a good look from the air in the Shearwater Stream colony flying over there in a helicopter and then I spent around a week up in the Kofi Valley colony. And it's been pretty hard hit. There's been lots of slips and rockfalls that damaged the colonies. Um, in the Kofi Valley there has been an absolutely massive rockfall. It's like a 
it looks like Hooker Glacier of rocks has come down in one area, and that's taken out about 10 to 15 percent of, of the breeding area. We knew about that from well, photos taken immediately after the earthquake and some new aerial imagery. Um, what we didn't know was how damaged the the other areas of the of the breeding colony were. Um, so the areas that remain, um, we didn't know whether all those burrows had collapsed or um, whether they were actually still intact and the birds were okay. And what did you find? There's been a drop in the burrow density, but not as bad as we feared. So I think burrow numbers are, are down about 20 to 30% compared to 10 years ago. So it's taken a hit, but it, it's nowhere near as bad as we, we feared. We thought then, you know, that it could have been absolute catastrophic mortality of all all the breeding birds in those burrows. Um, that hasn't happened, thank goodness. And whilst there has been a reduction, there were lots of birds back in there, digging away, calling away, pairing up. So um, as a species, you know, seabirds, they should be quite resilient. There's, there's usually a, a big non-breeding population, and I imagine that those young birds and birds that formerly didn't have a burrow are now getting back in there and, and starting to find holes and, and breed again. Which is great to hear. As Richard says, they've only been able to check shearwater stream from the air as it's not safe to land and walk around. But from what they can see, burrow numbers there have also dropped by 20 to 30%. So it could have been a lot worse, which is actually good news. And two other bits of good news. Access to Corfi stream hasn't changed despite all the damage, so it still remains pretty much off-limit to pigs, which wiped out many hut and shearwater colonies. And the very small fledgling colony of Hutton's shearwaters which has been established within a predator-proof fence on Kaikoura Peninsula has 25 eggs this year. Congratulations! Thanks to Richard Cuthbert for that breaking bird news. And if you want to find out more about the bird, check out Richard's new book, Seabirds Beyond the Mountain Crest, The History, Natural History and Conservation of Hutton Shearwater, published by Otago University Press. Now, I'm going to hand you over to William Ray for a feature called What Do We Do? which will give you something to chew over. Kia ora. I'm William Ray and this is a special episode of Our Changing World supported by the Aotearoa New Zealand Science Journalism Fund. It's a podcast about disruptive technology, specifically new food technologies like lab-grown meat, vat-grown milk and plant-based proteins, the so-called meatless meats you might already be seeing pop up on your supermarket shelves and in advertisements like this one. We've got chicken or beef. I think I'll take the beef. Give it a go, eh? Yeah, give it a go. Tell us what you think. Absolutely delicious. Tender. It's actually really good. Do you know what? That's 100% plant-based. That's crazy. <laughs> No meat in that whatsoever. It does taste like chicken. <laughs> Instead of looking at the details of how these technologies work, we're going to look at their potential effects on New Zealand and what our options are to deal with those effects. So, what could those effects be? Let's start with a potential worst-case scenario. And yes, this is highly hypothetical. It's the year 2020-something. 
there's been a revolutionary technological breakthrough. But we start now with some uh, breaking news. Reports are coming well, in. We are continuing to follow this breaking news. A company overseas has found a way to make a liquid that's chemically indistinguishable from cow's milk, and they can make it for much cheaper than the natural stuff. As more and more of these new milk factories come online, demand for New Zealand dairy starts to dry up. The commodity price of milk plummets and farmers simply can't turn a profit out of dairy farming anymore. Some farmers figure if you can't beat them, join them and start growing the high-protein vegetable crops like soy and sunflowers which are used to make this new milk. But overseas farms with their government subsidies, vast areas of cheap flat land and closer proximity to markets are difficult competition. And then, just as millions of surplus cows are sent to slaughter, a cheap new meat product grown in labs hits the market. Now the meat industry is in dire straits too. Many farmers can't make it. Tens of millions of dollars in assets, milking sheds, irrigation systems, freezing works become all but worthless. Blood runs in the streets, zombies rise from the grave, hunting human brains, rivers catch fire. You get the picture. Again, it's a worst case scenario, and there are lots of reasons to think it might never happen. But there are also some reasons to think it could. You've probably already seen stories like this in the news media recently. Professor Mark Post believes cultured beef could save the world's food crisis, massively improve animal welfare. From one tiny piece of tissue can come 20,000 kilos of beef. We are scaling up production um, and we are getting rid of some of the animal products. It's hard to foresee what's going to happen in the future, but I think we are seeing a, the perfect storm around um, science, technology and consumer demand around uh, more environmentally sustainable products that suddenly makes this way of growing food hit a lot of buttons for people in a way that uh, alternatives haven't in the past. So the potential for significant disruption, I think, is there. How quickly that will play out is, I guess, yet to be seen. That's Steve Carden, the chief executive of Landcorp, the government-owned company which is New Zealand's biggest farmer. Among the biggest changes he and others see coming is in the price of these new food products. Here's Dr Rosie Bosworth, a food technology futurist. Their goal is to come in at some point and and compete on price and indeed undercut those commodity prices. Though, like with any new technology, whether they come in and enter the market um, price competitive will be another thing. Um, they, may, they may, like all new products, um, come in at a price premium. And then as they scale and, and get more partnerships on board and consumer adoption um, rises, then those costs will continue to, to drop. Do you think they'll get there eventually, though? Oh, yes. There's, there's no doubt about that. It's just a matter of when, not if. One of the big companies or startups in the space that are producing um, what we call cellular agriculturally produced meat, Memphis Meats, they intend to be on the market in 2018. That's next year. And Memphis Meats aims to be in, in, you know, at price parity or actually below price parity um, in mainstream supermarkets by 2021. So that's, that's not far away. 
Of course, not everyone agrees that the rise of these new products is inevitable. Fonterra, for one, is betting against them. Milk from cows provides a natural and complex mixture of proteins, fats, minerals and other nutrients, which will be almost impossible to manufacture. So there will always be a global growing market for dairy. And even if Fonterra is wrong and these products are technically feasible, there are big questions about whether large numbers of consumers will actually want to drink milkless milk or eat meatless meat. But if you ask Angus Robson, that isn't the real threat. Angus is a Waikato-based engineer who sits on the Environmental Steering Group for Landcorp, and he's deeply concerned about these new technologies. For me as a concerned citizen of the country, I've, I've put it on about a 9 out of 10. I don't think I've seen anything bigger um, or with the potential to overturn things heavier than what this is. I think what is easy to think is I would never buy artificial milk or meat because of an ick factor or, or whatever. But the consumer like you or I isn't the market for a lot of this stuff. Um, it's the ingredients manufacturer. And we don't ourselves have a real much of a say in what the ingredients are. So if, if, for example, a chocolate maker wants to substitute New Zealand milk powder, which costs them 3000 a tonne, for artificial milk powder, which may cost him 2000 or even 1500 a tonne, we would never know. But it makes an enormous difference to whether or not we can sell our milk powder or not. We've already seen something like this happen for genetic modification. Lots of consumers have some degree of concern about GMO food and might not be willing to buy, for example, a genetically modified carrot. But a lot of those same consumers still happily eat processed food products with GMO ingredients. It seems that so long as there's some distance in the production chain, we're willing to let that ick factor slide. The obvious response then is for our farmers to focus on products where that ick factor around synthetic or artificial food is likely to be strong. Federated Farmers Vice President Andrew Hoggard, who's a Waikato-based dairy farmer, says the strategy in that area is already well underway. You know, there's still going to be a demand for the real stuff. People will still want the real stuff, like there is at the moment a demand for organics. You know, New Zealand's in a good position where we kind of lead the way in terms of carbon efficiency for our cows compared to the rest of the world, world-leading animal welfare regulations. So there's a lot of things we're already sort of ahead of the curve on. We definitely need to get better at all of them, but, you know, it might be where we, we become the world's niche provider. The meat industry has very similar concerns about increasingly cheap alternative products, and just like the dairy industry, they're looking at pursuing the premium end of the market as the way forward. In fact, Beef and Lamb New Zealand CEO Sam McIver says his organisation has commissioned an extensive report on how it can respond to the rise of products like plant-based protein and lab-grown meat. We're in the midst at the moment of building a red meat story for New Zealand and and as we've done this international research we've benchmarked ourselves against other brands other country brands for, from around the world and and we believe in terms of naturally produced product there is nobody that can genuinely meet us in that space to give you an example um, grass-fed you know every country around the world is trying to build a grass-fed brand. And, and I, was in the, I was in the US when Ireland 
launched their grass-fed sort of standard. And they said, well, our grass-fed is that these animals can be on grass six, seven or eight months a year, and you're sort of going, well, that's not a genuine, uh, authentic grass-fed story. You know, that's a bit of greenwashing to a certain extent. You know, we, we are the people that can genuinely give that promise and, and the real naturally raised um, product. So this is plan A. Focus on the segments of the market who want good old-fashioned meat and dairy and promote our products as natural, animal-friendly and sustainable. It's an approach with widespread endorsement, including from the new Agriculture Minister, Damien O'Connor. In the end, it will be a lower impact possibly from plant-based alternatives or alternative proteins versus the natural product that you have from a organic or pastoral based system and I think in the end um, we should have you know huge opportunities you know we can only feed 40 million people there are more than 40 million people in the world who want to connect to what has been you know uh, a natural process through thousands and thousands of years of, of consuming protein in a way that's that's helped us develop as humans um, the alternatives and, and you don't have to go back too far to look at margarine versus butter you know va- margarine was put up as you know the, the healthy alternative for many many years but we've seen emerging wisdom around actually the, the non-processed butter being a better source of fat and and and, um, and goodness than the highly processed margarine product but pursuing the premium market isn't a silver bullet solution for one thing, Angus Robson has big questions about competition. I think anybody contemplating the future would say straight away, yes, let's go premium. But we're not talking about a New Zealand disruption. We're talking about a worldwide disruption. Everybody that produces milk will be facing the same issues. So Ireland, Denmark, France, USA. And their farmers will go, oh, well, we'll go premium. And there's only so much market for premium. If we went crazy premium and we were very successful at it, yeah, we might get some more, so long as not too many other people tried it. But I still don't see that substituting for 90% of the other that we're doing. Another issue, says Keith Woodford, who's an honorary professor of agri-food systems at Lincoln University, is that we risk over-hyping the level of demand for some of these premium products. The... Grass-fed beef tends to have its own characteristics, but trying to actually market those to consumers is is another thing altogether. Now, you go to Japan and you look at the premiums they will pay for the Wagyu cattle, huge premiums. And then you come down and you look at the American feedlot beef, that's quite a lot cheaper. And then you look at um, grass-fed beef, and that's um, further down again. So I think the story with grass-fed, it's one of those classic ones where that is our strength, but then we just assume that consumers elsewhere will recognise that the grass-fed beef is better. And in practice, it just doesn't always work that way. And Rosie Bosworth says it's dangerous for us to assume new technologies won't be able to compete at the premium end of the market. 
is there really going to be a demand for traditional New Zealand milk when there will be a plethora of alternatives, of high-quality plant-based products, of price-competitive synthetic milk made locally, um, tailored to their needs as as is regular milk is, but perhaps even further, um, you, you can um, start to play around with all sorts of food technologies that can really customise that milk for the end consumer, lactose-free, cholesterol-free, added whatever vitamins you like, just like we have with milk. But synthetically, why would these this massively important consumer group of millennials um, then choose to buy a, a, a creamy dairy milk from New Zealand um, when they have these options? Another really big challenge faced by the premium model has nothing to do with branding. It's that in order to turn a profit on their premium meat and dairy, producers still need to sell a lot of non-premium product. Here's business journalist Rod Oram to explain. You couldn't possibly afford to farm cattle for meat or or sheep for meat um, if you were only going to be selling some exquisite um, part of that animal. You, you've got to sell the rest, otherwise you, you just can't, can't play the, make the money. And the same applies to the dairy industry as well. And even if you look at um, the premium product, which has perhaps the big, which obviously has the biggest volume, which is infant formula, you're still taking only a small part of that milk to get the parts you want. Conversely, these new technologies have no residual raw material. They, they're only using what they then turn into a food product or that can be recycled. It is fundamentally a a different process, a manufacturing process, which has huge efficiencies um, of scale, um, but huge efficiencies through um, minimum, if any, um, waste material. I would have loved to ask Fonterra whether they have a plan to deal with this potential challenge to the premium side of their business. Unfortunately, they failed to respond to several interview requests. So instead, I put the question to Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Sam McIver, who says the solution is to drastically increase the proportion of a carcass that has premium value. If we talk about you know other parts of the animal, whether it's the hooves or whether it's the bones, there are, there are all sorts of beneficial products that can come out of those bones if we, if we talk about uh, blood plasma, for example, out of New Zealand. So we, New Zealand is essentially the, the most disease-free country in the world. And so because of that, um, our blood plasma can be put to really good medical uses for people. So, so I think part of as much as our thrust will be around saying, actually, we need to ensure that people have a meat product that they love and enjoy and feel good about eating, there will be those other aspects of the carcass that we'll continue to work on, develop products out of, and and make sure that those are products that benefit the world. But what about the low-grade meat, the stuff that's too tough or tasteless to sell at a premium price and which usually goes into hamburgers and sausages? Funnily enough, I actually used to work at a meat processing factory for someone who might have an answer to that question. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Eric. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Are you all right to have a bit of a chat about this um, meat thing? Yeah, sure. Cool, cool. This is Eric Hunt. He's the dad of one of my best mates from school. He sold up his factory in Hamilton where I used to work a few years ago, but he still works part-time as a food technology consultant. These days he's very interested in pet food. It's getting harder and harder and harder to get the raw material, which is 
all the offcuts and offals from the carcass. Now, say 10 years ago, a lot of it was just getting turned into rendering, so it was just waste. Now, um, as uh, more is known about pet nutrition and the fact that you need a lot of collagen and connective tissue for glucosamine and chondroitin, the price of all of the product that used to be waste is just going up and up and up. And the pet food in countries like Japan and America, they're paying up to $100 a kilo for it. And the background of that is really that a lot of people are choosing not to have children anymore and their pets have become that focus and they're um, humanising them. So uh, they'll actually spend more on uh, food for their pets than they would food for their children. And there's also a question of authenticity. There's a lot of people out there that want what is authentic. So some people just wouldn't go for plant-based and they would probably boycott any place that was selling it. So maybe this is a way through. If our low-grade meat faces stiff competition from new food technologies, maybe we could feed it to our pets rather than to ourselves. Rosie Bosworth isn't convinced. There's people who are now making plant-based pet foods and all sorts. If we reach a scenario when it's no longer cost-competitive to grow cows, that's going to be a very expensive meat for pet food. It may end up being not not a, um, a particularly attractive business model going forward. But who knows, perhaps the paleo market and the CrossFit market could take the world by storm and everybody wants that, that con- connective tissue and the bone broth and all sorts, and that may help see kiwi farmers through, but I, I wouldn't be banking on that. We could go back and forth arguing whether the strategy of pursuing premium meat and dairy products will work. But for now, let's just consider it plan A and move on to talk about plan B. The thought has probably already crossed your mind. If this plant-based protein is the way of the future, why can't we get in on the action? Keith Woodford says the problem is the kind of plants these proteins are based on. There's no way we can produce products such as wheat or sunflowers or any of the broadacre crops at a competitive price relative to, for example, the United States. The reason that pastoral agriculture works so well is because it rains so much in New Zealand. We have such a bountiful rainfall and that makes the grass grow for much of the year. But when you come to grow cereal crops in New Zealand, it's actually expensive. We often have to dry the crops. We have trouble with wet periods, with diseases as a result of that in the crops. And we would really struggle compared to much of Europe and much of the United States if we were trying to compete on a cost basis in relation to many of these plant proteins. Now, that doesn't mean to say we can't find some, and as I say, I'm part of a group. We are actually looking for such opportunities. And Keith Woodford isn't alone in looking for opportunities in New Zealand for plant-based products. Please use the 
This is the sound of 80 or so innovators, business people and scientists gathered in a very sweaty and somewhat unventilated room at Lincoln University. It's an event called Feed the World 2030, the Power of Plants Hackathon. So it is getting people together to stop and say, where is New Zealand's play in the plant-based protein area, plant, um, uh, future foods, and what do we need to do to make sure we're well prepared, we move towards it, and we can capture the value. That's Sue Suckling, the chair of Lincoln Hub and Callaghan Innovation, both sponsors of the event in which 13 teams are developing and pitching ideas in the plant food arena. One of the teams I spoke to at this event were investigating a 40-year-old technology for processing leafy plants like lucerne and separating out the protein, sugar and fibre. Rob McDonald is the man behind that technology. He's a scientist who just recently retired from the government-run research agency Plant and Food. Somebody just said by accident that there was this hackathon thing on plant proteins. And I thought, well, that's what I'm doing unofficially. (laughs) It would be really nice to meet an audience which was really interested in that. And so I accidentally came along, (laughs) and it's been fabulous. You tripped over yourself and fell into a group of entrepreneurs. Yeah, well described. (laughs) At the time Rob was investigating this technology in the 1970s, the focus was on getting the sugar out of the plants and converting it into biofuel. This was at the height of the oil shocks and fuel rationing. But now his idea is to focus on the protein which can be extracted from plant leaf. If all goes to plan, you could convert that protein into so-called synthetic meat, you could feed the fibre from the leaf to livestock as a cheap supplement, and use the sugar as a biofuel to run the processing factories. Understandably, it's an idea that other members of Rob's team, like Paul McGill, who works for Landcorp, are very excited about. Paul says the most exciting part of the technology is the plants it's based on, chiefly lucerne and red clover. Those two plants are legumes, for one, so you don't need to use nitrogen fertiliser, which is a very energy-intensive product to make, and it basically uses either coal or natural gas, so we don't need that. Um, and it's a perennial, so that means you know, when we're competing against other plant-based proteins, it's generally an annual crops like soy, uh, sugarcane, corn, wheat, barley. So if you can use a legume and you can u- make it perennial, then you're, uh, you're in a pretty good space. And the other big advantage of red clover and lucerne, unlike the big cereal crops, they grow really well in New Zealand. You know, we already grow really good um, pastoral forages, um, so whether that is lucerne or red clover or whatever it might be in the future, we do that well in the temperate climate, which there's not many uh, good places that do that. So we've got that. Um, we're GMO-free, and there's plenty of New Zealand customers actually that need a little tweak, they just need a couple more things on their story to tell a good New Zealand story. So one, or a King Salmon, you know, they've got a really good product there, they have a really good um, integrated supply chain, but they're still requiring, you know, to use imported feed. So if we could use even this product, some of the omega foods out, some of the proteins, give them a fish food that's New Zealand source, GMO-free, that just adds to their story. So is this pasture-based protein idea our saviour? Possibly not, but Angus Robson says there's value in pursuing these ideas, even if they fail. My business has been thinking up things and patenting them and developing them and selling them overseas. And I know that if you are deep into the development side of things, 
then you will always see um, areas to uh, get patents and preserve your IP and then sell it all over the world and keep the others out. These early stages of any game, there's a lot of IP on the table, uh, you know, intellectual property, a lot of peripheral stuff that we haven't yet seen what it is yet. But if we dive in, we will see those opportunities. Many thanks to William Ray and all the people who were interviewed. There's a longer version of the story, What Do We Do?, on our webpage. To find it, just head to rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Now this was the last Our Changing World for this year. But don't worry, we're actually back from next week with Summer Science, which is a lovely excuse to revisit some of our most popular stories from the year and also discover some brand new podcasts from students at the University of Otago's Centre for Science Communication. Listen out for us in the evenings after the 7 o'clock news, usually, but not always, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Many thanks for your company this year. Have a great summer, and we'll catch you next year. From me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.